I spent a lot of time in New Orleans, and this is a tough thing to say, but let me be really honest. I think the best thing that happened to the education system in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. After flooding wiped out most New Orleans schools, the state of Louisiana stepped in, taking over one of the worst performing school districts in the nation. New Orleans public schools were headed for rock bottom. Fewer than a third of eighth graders could pass a reading test, and corruption was so deep the FBI had set up an office inside the school administration building. Ms. Orange-Jones votes yes. Mr. Romer? Yes. Mr. Romer votes yes. Ms. Dastug? Yes. Ms. Dastug votes yes. You have nine yeas, one no, and one abstention. The, okay. motion, passes. Mo motion, the motion passes. Uh, congratulations, Mr. White. You're now the state superintendent of education in Louisiana. Thank you. Well, I, I, of course, want to thank you to the board for the opportunity. It is deeply humbling as a career educator to be given the opportunity to positively impact the lives of hundreds of thousands of Louisiana's children. The superintendent uh, John White. John White, who is the state superintendent of education for the state of Louisiana. School superintendent John White meets with Governor Bobby Jindal, hoping to come to some sort of compromise. Prior to Katrina, New Orleans, by any measure, was the lowest performing urban school system in the country. It was the second lowest performing school system and the second lowest performing state in America. That brings us appropriately to our look at what's happened in New Orleans schools over the course of the past decade and the big changes they've undergone. New Orleans is the only system in America that enrolls traditional public schools, charter public schools, non-public schools, all in one process because it's not about the governing structure. It's not about the budgetary structure. It's not about the school board structure. It's about the parent and what the parent wants for that child. It's been a long time since we've been able to say this, but tonight we have some good news to report about the education system here in New Orleans. For the last 10 years, they've been engaged in what some have called the most ambitious experiment ever in public education. Louisiana has always been a low-performing state, but under John White's leadership, this state has made more progress than any other state in the United States, according to the National Assessment of Educational Progress. The charter system has done tremendously uh, well for the local kids here. We have 4,000 people who go home today and they say, I now understand a little bit better how to help my kids reach a high bar. That's success. This is Ravi Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives. If you're coming to this feed for the regular Lost Debate show, stick around because this is a special episode. And what this is is a narrative podcast series from Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. So it's a little different than our normal show. What we're going to do here is we're going to take a step back. And as background, I'm a veteran of progressive campaigns, but I've long felt that liberals' professed values and practices are often out of sync. And this podcast is dedicated to shining a light on those discrepancies in the hopes of eliminating them. And today's episode is really exciting because I'm speaking to John White, who's an educator and public official who served as the Louisiana Superintendent of Education from 2012 to 2020. And before that, he ran the New Orleans education system. And before that, he was a senior leader in New York City system. And what's really interesting about Louisiana is when John stepped in, it was in the aftermath of Katrina, and he had to full-scale reinvent that entire system. And he didn't just want to set it on the same footing it had before the hurricane, but actually use the crisis to push through reforms to help every kid perform better and have better odds than they did even before the hurricane. 
and it worked. Louisiana's class of 2018 included 5,000 more graduates than the class of 2012 did. That was the year he started as state superintendent. 5,000 more students in that class earned the state's college scholarship called the Top Scholarship, and 5,000 more enrolled in college after graduating high school. In that time, the number of Louisiana students earning advanced placement early college credits has increased by 167%, and Louisiana ranks number one in the nation in the percentage of high school seniors completing an application for higher education financial aid. In short, he is one of the most, if not the most, transformative state education leaders we've had in this country in recent memory. And so we're going to talk to John about that, how he did that, how he performed that transformation, and what he thinks our politics right now is getting wrong about education, and what he would do across the country to help kids everywhere. Let's jump in. Well, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Robert. Great to be here. Well, John, let's start with New Orleans and Louisiana. Back in, I think it was, what, 2005 when Katrina hit uh, New Orleans? Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the devastation that hit that city, but probably a little bit less familiar unless they're from New Orleans or Louisiana with what particularly that devastation meant for the city school system. So paint the picture for us. What happened overnight within that school system? And then when and how did you enter the picture? You know, it's it's a hard one to explain because what it effectively meant is that there were no people in the city. And, um, you know, the suffering, as you said, was, was massive. Um, but it was followed by uh, a mass displacement of people. And by the way, the population of the city is still down um, by more than a quarter of the time since it was, uh, since the population was prior to Katrina. So it's a, it's a generational shift in the, in the size of the city. And for a long period of time, there were no people in the city. Of course, when you have no people in the city, you have no children and families. When you have no children and families, you have no schools. And when you have no kids in schools, then the state and the local taxpayers aren't going to pay the school system to operate. And so there was a question that really no school system of that consequence in the country has ever faced at such a, at a singular moment in time like that, which is what happens when your budget goes to zero? What do you do? And so in the, in the most technical sense, what happened is the school system said, we're ceasing to operate. All of our teachers are accessed. Basically there's no, there's no budget, there's no kids and we need to rebuild. And really the, the, that initiated the potential in a sense for a kind of regeneration of what before Katrina had been by any account, the most struggling school system in America. I mean, statistically, narrative wise, that was certainly true, but that was a very difficult moment, obviously a very hard decision to reach. And one that had consequences, good and bad that will last for generations. Uh, But it really was that moment that they decided to say, we're not going to, we're not going to create it as it was. We're going to let it, we're going to bring it back new. Um, That initiated a lot of change. And just pausing there for a second, uh, just give us a little bit more color on what the school system was like pre-Katrina in terms of student performance and ongoing issues with corruption and mismanagement of the school system. Yeah, I mean, look, it's worth saying Louisiana is the second poorest state in the country. It's the it's um, as a as a as a state 200 years ago, it had a larger share of of uh, enslaved individuals in any population in the country. I mean, it, this is a place that has challenged that has, that has struggled with 300 years of bigotry and bias and segregation, enslavement, prejudice. Um, so the history of that um, bears 
deeply on the present and the present as of as of 15 years ago was in the second poorest state in the country. This was the lowest performing school system in the country. I mean, it, it effectively was the, the lowest performing district in effectively the second uh, lowest performing and sometimes lowest performing state in the country and the second poorest state in the country. This this was for all intents and purposes, statistically, the bottom of the rung in, in uh, American education systems. And also it had some of the more conventional tropes of being very, very mismanaged. You know, the FBI had actually opened up a, a, a small office in the school board building. So rife with corruption was the was the school board. The school Inside board. the school yes. board. Building. I mean, and the school board president Inside. was indicted as a consequence of that investigation not long before before Katrina um, and ultimately went to federal prison. This was on the uh, immediately prior to, of course, a mayor, the mayor during the time of Hurricane Katrina being indicted and the governor prior to Hurricane Katrina being indicted. So the the, the Orleans Parish School Board, all of that history notwithstanding, was a political machine that, and that's a, essential to the story we're going to talk about in the future. The Orleans Parish School Board was a political machine that was uh, accrued to the benefit largely of the political class rather than to the kids in this deeply, deeply needy environment. And remind me, at what point do you get down in yeah. New Orleans? Well, a couple of things happened. So first, the school board decided we're not going to try to employ uh, a, a large workforce, more than 3,000 people, that we can't employ when we have no budget. And so they they let go effectively. And the wisdom of that decision, the state's decision not to try to subsidize that workforce has been debated for years. The state decided to step in in the wake of that and say, we will use our legal authority, which Louisiana uniquely had then, to take over the governance and management of what was 80 to 90 percent of the schools at the time into something called the recovery school district, which had been created years before that had nothing to do with the hurricane recovery, but was called that nonetheless. I was um, asked to come down as the superintendent of the recovery school district uh, five years after after Katrina and and two years after the kind of erection of the recovery school district in New Orleans. And that recovery school district had initiated, had started to initiate um, not just the management of schools, but also the conversion of the schools that it managed, meaning that 80 to 90% of the city schools that had come under its, under its um, umbrella to convert them to independent nonprofit governed charter schools. And, and that is a really is the critical distinction on two levels, Robbie, between the conventional state takeovers that other states had tried. And I taught in one of them. My first job was in Jersey City, New Jersey, where the state had taken over the school system for years. In those instances, typically the state has come in and said, we're going to run the school board office and we're going to run the schools. Here, the state said neither. The state said, you can keep your school board and you can manage the 15% of the schools that we're not taking over. And secondly, um, we're not even going to try to run and, and manage from Baton Rouge the schools that we have under our umbrella. We're actually going to commission nonprofit deserving organizations to be the day-to-day operators of those schools. And that's work that similar work that I've been involved in in New York City. And so a couple of years after the recovery school district initiated their work, I came down to be the superintendent uh, in New Orleans. And so essentially most of the district becomes charterized, I guess, is what you would say, like nonprofit charter school organizations run the majority of the school system. Most cities, even like robust cities, we know have robust uh, nonprofit charter school markets, you know, they may get to 20, 25%, maybe 50% in certain exceptional cases. 
you're talking about upwards of 90%, right, of the city is run um, within a few years by new entities, either like existing charter organizations that came to New Orleans or new entities that sprouted up uh, pretty quickly. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of things to unpack there. First, the state and, and with, with our group as an agent of the state, we did it over a long period of time. So it wasn't until 2014 when, when every public school locally was run by a, a nonprofit organization. Secondly, the local school board actually did it alongside the state. And that's, that's not very often understood that the Orleans Parish School Board, which had retained its management over 15% of the schools, actually did their own charter school conversions. They saw the advantage of doing it um, that way. And last, the, the, the state continued to play, or both districts, the Recovery School District and, the, and the, uh, the Orleans Parish District, a very, very heavy regulatory role over these independent charter schools. Meaning just because you have charter schools, which are autonomous, nonprofit-run schools, doesn't mean that you don't retain a strong governmental presence. In fact, what I would say, Ravi, is there aren't schools that are more closely scrutinized in America than the New Orleans charter system. And why is that? It's because here, because you have such sizable market share, the charters aren't just saying we're off to the side, we can pick and choose the kids we want. And I'm not saying that that's happened overwhelmingly, but I think in charter and traditional public schools, it happens. But they're not on the margins. They are the system here in New Orleans. And so consequently, issues like how do you enroll kids? How do you deal with students with disabilities? How do you, uh, how do you share in financial burdens? How do you put money back into collective solutions that aren't just stuff you as an individual school can deal with, you need to do together with other schools. Those things require a governmental presence as a coordinator. And so just because we have independent charter schools doesn't mean we don't have very aggressive uh, oversight coming from the government. You know, I remember I started in the charter sector around 2010. Obviously, the the work that you're talking about was well underway by then, but I think it was at the heart of the realization at that point my sense at that time, I spent a lot of time in New Orleans, was there were a lot of young, talented people moving to New Orleans. Good. The problem was that they were not from New Orleans. They were displacing people who, when you talked about the sort of mass layoffs that were happening from Katrina, there was a legitimacy issue. Uh, where there were a lot of new residents moving to the city often, you know, Ivy Leaguers was like, you know, like the sort of stereotype of it all. Like our friend Ben Markovitz is probably a good example, like super talented, super smart Yale graduates moving to the city, Teach for America in many cases. A lot of good came of that. And we'll get to a lot of the other issues. It seems like that was one major, I would say, both political and practical issue that at that time, seemed to be a dominant discussion. Was that your experience? Yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, this is an issue that touched, meaning Katrina and its, and its aftermath, that touched millions of people. It's hard to boil it down to kind of truisms that really hold up under scrutiny like that. For example, a huge percentage of the, of the charter school principals who started charter schools and started charter school boards were longtime New Orleans public school people who had been, frankly, you know, kind of held back by the political machine and the bureaucracy of a, of a traditional public school system. More than half of the, of the teachers and, and principals when I arrived and still today are people of color uh, within the system. And so I think that some of the kind of mythology of, of what happened around that time is a little bit unfairly placed. That said, yes, I mean, undoubtedly, when the whole 
domestic workforce scatters into the into the, the throughout the rest of the country. And then when you have this kind of uh, social entrepreneur class that's coming to New Orleans to work on education and a, and a host of other issues. Yeah, the initial impulse is to say that's great, but there's a lot of challenge that comes with that too, especially in a place that is as rooted in a tradition of multi-generational living um, as New Orleans is. New Orleans is not New York or, or Washington, D.C. It's not a place where people just come for a couple of years habitually and then leave. It's a place where families have been going back to their to their uh, original heritage in this continent. So and a very proud place. Yeah. And very proud very of that, proud. absolutely. Yeah. So so I think there's no question that that Katrina begot things that are good and bad, but they were all unquestionably disruptive. And obviously within that, you have to make trade-offs and you also have to mitigate the the bad. But I don't think categorically you can say that the that the displacement of the old with the new was a kind of bad thing. It was in many regards a necessary thing, in many regards a good thing. And of course, as with any disruption of that scale, there's going to be some bad aspects to it. Yeah. And do we know anything? I haven't seen data on this, like anything about the diversity, because I've heard this claim before, like about the diversity of the teaching force and, and all of that. Um, do we know anything about like what the diversity of the teaching force was before Katrina and now and how it sort of squares up with what some of the critics of, of what's happened, what are they claiming? The teach, I mean, I, I think the, the, the political kind of opposition to the, to the reforms as they were, will always trot out that the, that the staff is less representative of the public school workforce today than it was. And that, that's, that's true. I mean, it was overwhelmingly black before, and now it is majority black, but not overwhelmingly majority black. Now, the city is not overwhelmingly majority black. It wasn't then, and it really isn't now. And you can argue that that is a good thing or a bad thing, or it just is what it is. And there's a lot of other policy issues you get into when you talk about that, in particular, the economy, the housing environment, social services environment, and, and the politics. But one way or the other, the teacher workforce is close to being representative of the population here generally. It is majority black though it is not close to being representative of the public school population. Um, and the principal workforce is a little bit more African-American, a little bit more heavily weighted toward African-American leaders um, uh, than the teacher workforce is. So it's majority black principal and teacher, not as heavily as it was prior to Katrina, but the population has shifted. And broadly speaking, the public school teaching and principaling population is re representative of the broad New Orleans population even though the student population is not. And that that is another issue that's complicating and always has been. Yeah, and so let's talk about the students. Obviously, the most important part of the equation is how our kids are doing. My sense in looking at this is that the average student in New Orleans, data that Tulane University and others have put together seems to suggest that when we try to control for what we can control, the average student in New Orleans or the mean student or the median student in New Orleans is dramatically better off academically today than they were pre-Katrina. The second thing is, my understanding is that there were some tough lessons learned that you alluded to earlier about some of the highest need students and how a, a more disaggregated system would serve those students. Uh, are those two assumptions valid and, and is there more you could add to that? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think that there's a ton of evidence that the student population has changed in its background um, racially, uh, disability-wise, poverty-wise, other social conditions-wise um, since Katrina. 
there are different theories about that, but there's no, in that, in that research, there's no attribution to any results of any real shifts and meaningful shifts in student population. What's the Institute out of Tulane that's been studying this? I always forget that. There's two. The there, there's the Cowan um, Institute and then and then Doug Harris has an institute that I don't, the name of which I don't Got know. it. Yeah, I think it's the Cowan Institute. I was thinking it was like, either way, no matter what the claim is, they their model accounts for the change. Like whatever changes exist, whether they're small or big, from what I understand, right? They're trying to say like, look, like we're trying to do statistical statistical match between the student today versus the student before and all that and the shifting measures of success or whatever. So sorry, that that's just my understanding. Yeah, no, no, that's that's spot on. And I mean, yeah. the the results and by that standard, the results are unprecedentedly positive. I mean, you know, the statement in the Tulane research is they're not aware of any district in the country that's ever made this level of a leap forward in terms of quantitative academic outcomes. And I think that then you get into so what does that actually mean for people? Like, like it's a statistical analysis. What does it mean on the ground? And I think um, the good news is, yes, I, th- I think you can say that it's reflective of an acumen and a talent level and an energy in schools that has persisted. I've been working in the system now for 12 years. I mean, it's persisted through that time. And at the same time, it still barely scratches the mean in Louisiana, which is not you know an academic exemplar by the national norms. And secondly... You know, I think the the relationship between test scores and for an individual, not at a national level, but at an individual level, what that means for his or her economic prospects, for example, or uh, self determination, you know, that and you've wrestled with this, obviously. I mean, this is this is a very very humbling thing, which is to say that New Orleans, um, whatever transformative effects, good and bad, it had Katrina had on its on its uh, education system. It still is a small to mid-sized southern city in one of the most undereducated states in the country by credential with a lot of the kind of remnants of structural, institutional racism, bigotry, and bias built into its, its, its economic structure. It is a services industry that is reliant on tourism. Tourism uh, as an industry maybe benefits greatly the tourists and, and those who, who own the 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 facilities that benefit from it, but as a as a as an upwardly mobile source of income and stability for families, it's not wouldn't be the one you would tap. New Orleans, Louisiana is yeah. an extraction industry, a uh, 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 industry centric state that is digging itself out of a kind of agrarian nineteenth century economic model with only limited steps into a real knowledge economy that it, that is going to advantage greater levels of diversity. It's an immigrant poor environment that doesn't have has not benefited from the the abundance of immigration and knowledge and dynamism that that's brought to so many regional economies. So it's important to remember that even after Katrina, whatever you thought of these reforms, you're still graduating kids into an environment that is hyper local, where people tend to stay relatively local, and where that local context does not advantage individuals of color in achieving strong economic mobility. And, th- and so I, I'm not I'm just saying that for education, yes, have there been successes? Absolutely. Does that mean that the successes in the schools have have yielded radical transformations in the structure of the broader society? Probably not. And that's an important legacy of all of this to wrestle with and to be able to explain. Yeah, I think it's funny. You know, you and I have had, you know, we were kind of in the work at around the same time at different levels, right? I was starting a school back in 2010. And, you know, my experience, I think of it very much in terms of schools and school leaders, for me at the time, New Orleans was one of the few places in the country, Boston being one of them for different reasons. It was like sort of the smaller, more like tightly regulated 
market of charter schools. New Orleans was this place where you'd go down there and because of just the sheer quantity of new leaders and often exciting, smart people doing work down there, you just saw amazing things at the local level. And I, you know, I mentioned Ben Markovitz before. I remember going to his school around t- 2010, 2011. He's running the school uh, called the Collegiate Academy or Psy Academy at the time, became Collegiate Academies. And, you know, here you have is like a really smart person who's building a culture that I'd never seen in a school before. And I would say he was almost on the cutting edge of some of these questions that the city was dealing with. And it eventually, I think, wrapped its arms around in terms of the highest need students, for example. Like, I think for his own personal reasons, like his own family reasons, he 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 was almost a magnet for some of the more vulnerable students, some of the higher need students there. And I saw him over time grapple with not just the city dynamics that you're talking about in terms of the unique challenges of New Orleans, but, you know, it's something that a lot of charters... Like, for instance, in Nashville, we were a small part of the puzzle, and there was a, a school that once a student reached a certain need, the system would, by law, take that student from you if they reached a certain level of need. Whereas in New Orleans, you kind of have to work through that within your own school building. So I saw him doing things that were more path-breaking in special education, for example, and and within a few years, I, I would go there, and he was even doing post-12th grade work. What did you learn from a system perspective looking at that, that you both applied at Louisiana? And then when you think about nationally, when you think about like, how do we create a system and create the right kind of incentives, whether it's at the national level, at the state level or local level to do what we need to do for kids? Like, what did you learn from that? That I don't want to call it an experiment because I don't really think of it as an experiment, but that experience of seeing the transformation of New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, and you should take this with the understanding that my, my job, you know, my, my expertise is to run systems. Um, I don't think for a second that, that a system, as it were, can solve everyone's problems. But I do think that a system needs a strategy, meaning a system needs to understand what it is uniquely capable of affecting down to the classroom level. It needs to understand how it believes that the powers that it exercises actually contribute to, to what happens in the classroom. And then it needs to align everything it's got behind that theory of action. And anything that a system is doing that gets in the way of or is extraneous to that system of action is a distraction and a problem. When you're in the government, you exercise tremendous power over what happens on the ground. Your job isn't to determine what happens on the ground. You can never do that. But your job is to create the focus and the conditions for what happens on the ground that allows people to flourish and do the, the, the most important things that they see uh, in front of them. And so, you know, in New Orleans, I, I think we did have a coherent strategy. We had an understanding of how things affected kids on the ground, but, you know, there were some things that we didn't get right. And so you see in what we didn't get right, the weight of what happens, both when you do get things right, but also when you don't, when you're in a position of authority like, like ours. So the state, working at the state level rather than at the local level, which is where I spent most of my time in Louisiana, um, gave us this interesting contrast of saying, here's one city with a very distinct theory of action. That theory of action was about empowering local nonprofits to run schools given very stringent regulatory parameters. And at the state level, we decided to do something fundamentally different because we weren't dealing with independent nonprofit charter schools. We were dealing now 
with governing 69 school boards. And that's a different uh, player. It's a different regulatory environment. But you similarly have to say, we are a system. We create the conditions, the governing conditions, the incentives for people to act on the ground. And so we have to have a theory as to how things benefit kids and teachers. And we also then have to line up everything we do behind it. And that, that's, that principle is no different. If I were, and now I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but if I were to criticize, criticize right now broadly the American system in the wake of the pandemic, it would be that I could count on one hand the number of governmental leaders who actively could say, A, they understand their role, B, they understand how their role contributes to the daily life of kids in a direct sense, and three, they've lined up their agency or their district or their state or whatever it is in, in a way that all is contributing toward that specific view of how you affect change down to the classroom level. And so when you think about your work in Louisiana, what were some of the biggest moves that you made? And, you know, for better work, like what were the results? Like what worked, what didn't, that could be a lesson learned to somebody listening in a state that's not Louisiana could learn? Because I think most states have the structure you're talking about, like multiple school boards or superintendents. So certainly we're in this listening tour right now where we've been talking to education leaders around the country. And it's funny, when I talk to people in states like Mississippi, they emphasize different things. They talk about that local superintendent and how to incentivize them, right? So like, what did you learn there? Like, what did you do that worked? Yeah, and look, I, you know, we overstate the role that government people play. We lionize them and because you know, we see them in the media. Um, the truth of it is you, you are creating the conditions given the powers that you have for the people who really do the work to do it. You're focusing them and then you're creating the conditions for them to be successful. And I could, I would just point to probably three ultimate things that we, we ended up doing. First, we recognized that there were places in the system where um, there was profound misalignment among the different players, and we brought them under shared governing structures. Early childhood education is, is the main one, where you have Head Start, Child Care, Public Pre-K and Private Pre-K, all sitting under different regulatory structures. When, if you can bring them under one, the same is true of career and technical and early college pathways with their employer and post-secondary partners, bringing them all under singular governing structures so they're all literally operating as part of the same system rather than accepting this fragmentation that exists in the American education system. That's one of the most important things we, we did. And we drive, drove real change through career and technical education and early childhood care and education, making those kind of governing models. Second, I think we saw that standards-based reform, which we can talk a lot about, but which has been the kind of Duriger theory over the last 30 years, from our view, was better thought of as curriculum-based reform. That at the end of the day, standards for teachers are a kind of post hoc way of justifying what they're teaching. It's not really the substance of what they're teaching. And that a high-quality curriculum was a much better embodiment of Common Core or whatever other standards you were using. And you could build a whole system of reforms of teacher training, of high quality assessment, and of a day-to-day -day learning experience for kids if you started with the bedrock of really, really strong curriculum. And just on the curriculum side, I'm just curious, and I, and I think for our audience who are listening or not like education practitioners, just to state the obvious, the standard is a this is usually a more broad statement like, you know, students will be able to add fractions with on like denominators or something like that. The curriculum is the how that yeah. is being taught, yeah. like what that lesson looks like for the yeah. students. But yeah, what did you do on the, the curriculum side of things? Because obviously, you, you know, you were overlap with the Common Core yeah. and all this kind of stuff that we're, 
I think is thought of as a standards-based reform, but obviously did lead to a revolution in curriculum change because it nationalized, you know, theoretically, obviously there's a lot of weird politics around this, but it did more to nationalize the conversation around standards, which then allowed people to talk to each other from state yeah. to state about here's what a good fourth grade lesson looks like because they're all teaching the same standard in yeah. fourth grade. And look, I mean, you know, our, our business is no different from any other business. If you create unified standards, like we have unified norms as to how big a screw is that fits in a given fixture. If you create standards around how operating systems should be able to work so you can integrate the components of different technology providers, you know, you're going to catalyze uh, business. You're going to catalyze entrepreneurship because now uh, multiple players are able to play on the platform of common standards. When states said, okay, we will all basically agree that that fourth grade standard you just named is something we'll all put in our textbooks. Yeah, it allowed people to step up and say, well, I'd like to do a textbook because now I can play in Tennessee and Louisiana and, and not get boxed out by the legacy players. The stuff that America's kids learn every day is provided largely by three commercial players that have been doing it forever and have basically no accountability whatsoever. They have massive sales forces. Um, they sell based on their political relationships with school board members and superintendents, and they have no accountability. We decided to create a consumer reports for high quality curriculum that took a very hard line on what's good, what's medium and what's bad to call bad, bad, to call good, good, and then to advantage those actors that were good in going to market in Louisiana. If you were going to go to market with the support of the state of Louisiana, it was going to be because you got a good label from us. And when, when you start calling those questions and when you start taking the financial incentives for good operators and putting them on the table, the financial incentives for bad operators and taking them off the table, then you, you create the possibility of scale in your state. And there, there's a reason why Louisiana mm. districts use a very small number of curricula and they use only the best curricula as reviewed by multiple sources, not just, not just us. And that gives you a starting point for actually talking with 55,000 teachers about the stuff they're doing every day. Because I can say, yeah, I know that 10,000 of our teachers use Eureka Math. I know that another five or 10,000 use high quality ELA curriculum like uh, CKLA or like Wit and Wisdom or like uh, EL. You know, these are these are brands that are familiar to those teachers. And and when you do that, then you can organize a movement that teachers are supported around. You can bring people in to train teachers on specific curriculum rather than the BS that, frankly, teachers are trained on on a on a day to day basis. You know, in some regards, that's a very different strategy from what we did in New Orleans, which was to, to license those decisions to local operators. You know, you're hearing from me here what you could call a much more paternalistic look from the state. Yeah, there's almost a contradiction there, right? Like, because you're you're saying in the, in the New Orleans context, and I associate you, this is kind of a sloppy term, but you're, you're a little bit more cut through the red tape type of guy. Like I've heard you give like a speech in Think Tank yeah. in DC, I forget which Think Tank it was, where you're basically, you gave a compelling case to be careful about how many things you layer on regulation wise for schools because it could be suffocating. Yes. You, you got out of the way of a lot of innovation happening there in many ways. And I think at the state level, you're saying you were, you, you didn't like what some of the, the players were doing with the autonomy that they were given. Well, if, I, if I, th I think there's there's two things to say about this. And now we're getting into really wonky, um, you know, nerd. I love it. Yeah, that's what we're here territory. for. But so yeah, here, yeah. here's what I would say. First, there is a real difference in how you manage at 800,000 kids versus um, 40,000 kids. And that's the delta there. Um, there are only so many. There's a there's it is feasible to think about recruiting uh, charter school operators 
and sources of teachers and so on to serve 40,000 kids. It is not feasible to think about that at 800,000 kids. And so you have to think about what scales and, and, you know, the education reform universe and the philanthropies and so on have been very slow to recognize that most kids don't live in New Orleans or Nashville or the Bronx or Compton or wherever. They live in places that philanthropies and Teach for America and KIPP and all these organizations will never be, which are random suburbs and small towns and, and whatever else or secondary cities like Lake Charles, Louisiana or Bunky, Louisiana or whatever. I mean, these are these are places that are not on the on the big roadmap. So you have to think about well, what what can I do that reaches those places and curriculum is a much more efficient, much more likely to get consumed vehicle than are, say, charter school organizations. But there's a second piece of it which gets to your question, which is that um, at the essence of what I'm saying is always about taking out the red tape and the distractions and anything that that distracts focus from what's best for the kid. The strategies are different for clearing out the noise, but the but the end result is the same, which is coherence. And I will go to my grave saying that the that the flaw of the American education system is not in its lack of compassion or courageous zeal uh, for kids. It is in its complete and utter fragmentation and incoherence. And it's in that fragmentation, federal, state, uh, local superintendent, local board, local principal, down to the teacher, unions at every step. It's at that, that fragmentation, which is uncommon in any other developed nation, that you get noise. And the teacher experience is noise. What you hear in my New Orleans strategy is, yes, delegating down to the school level the powers to make policy decisions so that you can get clarity in the classroom level. What you hear in my Louisiana approach is a more heavy-handed narrowing of the variables so that school boards, which are political organizations, remember, can make coherent decisions that give teachers clear guidance. Those are different ways of getting to the same point, which is, as a teacher, I'm coming to work knowing what my goals are what my tools are, and what my strategy is for getting my kids to a better place, not coming to serve the objectives of some regulation, some rules, some politician, something else. And it is trying to eliminate the noise, even though the, the strategy for getting there is quite different. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that noise, right? You gave this speech, remind me where it was. It was in DC, and you probably have given many, but there was one in particular that was making the rounds years ago. AI, it was uh, AI, AI, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just something taken. I'm a Democrat, so I rare that I was listening at that time to AI. I've, I've now since diversified my portfolio of information. There was a time when it was it was reasonable for Democrats to listen to AI. I don't know that that's that's as much today. But a lot of what you said in this speech resonated for me, and you were just describing in detail. You were letting the details speak for themselves about just the sheer enormity of things being asked of people working in schools and how that can make it very hard to run a school. And I think what's happened since that speech is there's been a more robust conversation amongst people where I hang out and, you know, democratic politics around schools should X. Yeah, yeah. And these are all well-intentioned yeah, totally. things like schools should solve poverty. Schools should do, you know, mental health counseling, which I, I believe in many ways. But like you start to add, they should do medical work and ensure that p students are meeting a certain ba basic level of health care. But give it, give us some of those like details of just some of the weird combinations of regulations that can hit a school and how suffocating it can be. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's almost too many to name. The the U.S. system is organized around yes, it's organized around local control in the sense that every 
jurisdiction has its own school board. No other place in the world has that. We have 14,000 school boards. 50 states govern them. Of course, it's not like the legislatures in those states don't have their own aims to use schools as a vessel for their ambitions too. And then the federal government, suspicious of states, competing with states, wanting to have an education hand in things, has its own education law and that law changes and they have their own rules and lawyers and so on and they have their own. So all of this comes from the fact that our systems, our schools are designed for political dialogue. That'd be the, the best framing of it. And the worst framing of it would be as vessels for political ambition. Yeah. But our system is, uncare- is is uncommonly political in the way that it's set up. And what that means is that a school board is going to have rules. A school board's job is to create rules, rules around things like dress codes and the daily schedule. And But school boards can also make ridiculous rules about how, when a, what a teacher's time card should look like and, and how PD days should be spent and what to ha- what happens when a kid has below basic on science but not above basic on math or you know whatever it is school boards make rules states make programs and rules then that teachers are required to do this but teachers can be a part of this program there's a new certification that allows teachers to do that there's a certification for this it's being changed into that certification so you can hold multiple certifications so you've got the the right. state layer and then the federal layer is kind of the the broad guidance around what states have to do when they tell districts that they have to do stuff. So the states create a box and, you know, Title I would be an example of this. Districts ultimately spend Title I after it's been given to the state, after the feds put rules around what Title I, which is poverty funding, is allowed to entail. So the point is that that a teacher gets financial resources and gets guidance through layers that are as deep as their local school board, their state capital, and all the way up to Washington about what they should be doing every day. And it falls onto the principle typically to try to make sense of that world, which is a completely unfair task to ask any school leader school leader to do. So, the, the, you know, my response is not to say we need to just deregulate education. I, I think that's that's not really the right way to think about it. But to say that as a regulator, as a leader of governments, your job is to cut as much of that noise out as possible and to provide the appropriate focus on the things that you are charging the school system with doing. And your point, which I think is the right one, schools cannot do everything. So putting aside all those regulations, the politics around you've got to do social emotional learning. You've got to be educating on civics and your role as a citizen. You've got to be educating for skills. You've got to be writing a liberal arts education. You have to be a mental health facility on down the line. It's a wonderfully intended, also politically advantageous way of thinking about schools, but it is not what they are basically set up to do. And it simply begets more and more and more rules and regulations as we go on. It's suffocating enough, right? And these are, at least where I was, it's not a very union-heavy areas, right? You were in New York during some of these big battles. You were in the New York City school system uh, under Chancellor Klein, who had all these battles over this this union contract. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. So, like, you add all the things you're talking about, and then in certain jurisdictions, you have these contracts that the unions negotiate that to me make it like the idea of that there's a school leader irrelevant. Like this is not a leader of a school in any ways. They don't have the traditional powers that anybody running any business, you know, any any bureaucrat, even in some of the most bureaucratic institutions would have more power than the school principal in a New York City school. Walk us through what you learned, like what what is being carved out and how specific it is about 
what can and cannot be done in relation to managing your workforce yeah. if you're a school principal? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, look, I, I think it is important to see that unions in this country's public sector broadly, and in particular in education, the, the reason that they are so challenging is that there are, is, is, the, is, is our fragmentation. Meaning if there were one contract and it were negotiated at a national level with the level of transparency that any national piece of legislation is negotiated at, you know, that, that might be a, a, something that we could wrap our hands around. But when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of individual contracts, each negotiated with a local school board with its own politics, um, that's when you realize you, there's nobody who can successfully keep track of this. And then legislatures are actually saying, you are a monopoly union. Every district is obligated to work with you. You know, they are put in by the politicians an exceedingly strong position to negotiate. So they're operating in the shadows because there's just so many of them working in so many small jurisdictions. And they're given uh, just a, a, an incredibly advantageous position when they negotiate because they're working with the consent and the mandate, in effect, of the legislatures that are setting the rules for the state. So then what do you end up with? You end up with literally, and I mean this literally, a 300-page paperback-bound small print copy that anybody who's concerned with policy in New York literally just walks around in their book bag or in their pocket with, like it's a you know an old kind of novel, and um, you know it's it's it is page after page after page. I mean, it is literally like a dictionary that you can open up, and the rules get to things as granular as how much time can a teacher be asked to do this specific activity? What are the specific ramifications if they don't? What are the specifics results of that process if it's determined that they don't? What are the appellate processes? Blah blah blah, and it and it you know it governs effectively every minute of a day, literally every minute every of every day when an individual might be might be working in the system. So it effectively is kind of the management handbook for the system, as determined by people who don't run the system, and that's a you know that's a, a serious 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 problem. But I think it it is a function of and it should be seen as a function uh, of politics and of the of the influence that politics has when the system is as fragmented as ours as ours is because so much of it happens in the shadows. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not one of these people who believes that like we will we'll fire our way to excellence or anything like that, but you know, I remember reading Stephen Brill's Class Warfare and he makes the claim as it related to New York that holding accountable teachers who in some cases are accused of very serious things like involving, you know, either molesting children or falling asleep in the classroom or creating unsafe environments or just gross negligence. Uh, on the job, et cetera. He said that holding them accountable, whether it's firing them or or whatever, is like akin to, and in some cases even harder than conducting a criminal trial. And that the rules of evidence and the way the the adversarial nature of the system is so stacked that it's like nearly impossible to hold people accountable for some of the more egregious things that they do. Was that your experience? Yeah, I mean, I just by the numbers, I mean, you have a process that has been established by law for arbitrating those types of concerns, and it's been created to advantage the, the union, at least in the case of New York City, so that the, the number of people end up ever being actively managed out of the system is limited. And even those people who don't pick up jobs within the city retain rights to positions so that uh, somebody, for example, who doesn't want, who doesn't ever get hired still may have the right to bump people who were hired out of their job 
And the de Blasio administration was very favorable to that perspective. The Bloomberg administration was much more favorable to the perspective that we need to trust principals to hire whom they want, and we will bear the costs of those that that principals don't want. But I think the bigger point is less about the kind of, you know, New York Post flash headline teacher did this. I mean, those things are important. They need to be addressed. But the but the, the scaled effect is a, is a what I'd call a sclerotic system that where the dynamism that comes with entrepreneurship, somebody who shows up to work saying, I run a large enterprise, a school, public school in New York City. I have a vision. I have built a team around that vision organically. My team is pursuing the key performance indicators that I've set out for them. Like those are the, those are the hallmarks of successful organizations. And education is a knowledge business. We're not making widgets or tires or whatever. We're making ideas. We're making de- human development. So it's even more important that the organization be truly organic um, in that sense and that the management really have a plan that they've worked with their teams on. Any other input, whether it's Title I requirements and bureaucrats in Albany saying you can't do that with this, whether it's the local union leader saying, no, we can't work overtime on this, or these people are working too early, or these people are being asked to do things that their job contract doesn't allow for. Anything like that is a threat to coherence. And don't get me wrong, there are the, there are the need for protections for workers. There are the need for regulatory checks on fraud and abuse. But in the system, because the governmental power is so distributed, it's so fragmented and so uneven, there is no counterweight to the politics that drive these these vast regulatory overreaches. And so the day-to-day life of schools is consumed with this question, what should I do to abide by the rules, rather than the question that I saw in play in New Orleans when I first came down and still see today, which is how should I serve as part of an anti-poverty solution for these kids? And I do think that's the best of New Orleans and the worst of the over-bureaucratized system elsewhere. It's not to say, by the way, that there aren't great versions of the other systems. And it's certainly not to say New Orleans has figured everything out. It's a long way from that. But it is to say, when you take away a lot of that stuff, there is the ability to step back and say, why are we here? We're doing some of this on our own terms. We have a plan and we're going to move forward in this direction. And I like to think that in Louisiana, we said, we want you to focus on your curriculum. Your curriculum is what kids wake up and go to school to, to do, to learn. It's what teachers need to get masterful at learning how to teach. So we want you to focus on that above all else. In both cases, we were trying to, to elevate the primary questions and we were trying to uh, relegate to a sort of secondary status the regulatory questions. And that, that is, I think, the essence of good school government. Well, I know we're running out of time. I got one last question for you, if, if you've got a couple of minutes to answer it, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, you've served under both Democratic and Republican governors. I know you had a harder time with one versus the other. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I think I vote Democratic more often than, than not, almost exclusively in many cases. My biggest opponents and ideological opponents in some cases, like, you know, to the extreme where they would like take very aggressive actions against our schools. We're mostly Democrats, and most of my allies were Republicans. Now, there was, in many cases, a different kind of Republican at the time. There was like a Bill Haslam Republican, which I think has changed over time. Uh, A couple of parts of this that I I hope you can address for me. One is, what's your sense of what's happened to this this sort of Obama-Haslam or Bredesen-Jeb Bush-type consensus between the two parties on certain key things in education 
Like, is that gone is question number one. And question two is, if you were to bring the parties together, the people like frothing at the mouth or, you know, trafficking and like CRT debates and things like this and like, and, and, and from where I sit, there's some valid parts to these debates, but largely distracting from the core issues of what's going on in schools. Like, what would you say in this sort of hypothetical John White education summit that you're addressing? Like, where would you push people? Like, what solutions, either at the national or local level, would you would you bank on yeah. if you were able to have an audience with these people? Yeah. Well, I mean, my the other part of my speech, by the way, at AEI, which was a long time ago, I'll give myself a bit of a pat on the back uh, for this one, was kind of talking about the emergence of populism and education as a late arrival to the populism issue that had already touched healthcare and technology and so many other, so many other issues. And, um, and then we proceeded to see that in, in, this was now in early 2013 when I gave that talk. So we proceeded to see that in very, very strong colors throughout the common core discussion of the tea party. And now it's, you know, to a point with the kind of parental transparency, some of the anti-LGBTQ CRT type type discussions on the right, it's really, it's a political winner in a lot of places and it's, and it's a lead issue in a lot of places. So I think, you know, you're, you're right that on the right and on the left, there is, uh, the, the center consensus that was, I think, characterized for 20 or 30 years. Let's get back to the late eighties, all the way through the, the middle of the Obama administration. Um, yeah, it was characterized by businesses desire for competitiveness and the civil rights agenda's desire for equality. That, that was a, a marriage of unlike partners, but nevertheless partners that invested in a, in a version of a transparent access-oriented meritocracy, meaning it didn't reject the notion of merit, but, it, re, but it, it did reject that the meritocracy was behaving in a fair manner. So it sought fairness, it sought higher standards, and it sought higher standards in the name of both America's international competitiveness, but also the eradication of bigotry within the system. And so it was able to, to, it took an institutionalist perspective. And I'd say by and large, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama are institutionalists um, first and foremost. Both the left and the right have abandoned any endorsement of institutions, the right more than the left. But nevertheless, the left has in its own way too, by its statement that wholesale institutions are emblematic of certain ideologies or certain biases. You know, they have they have in their own way conducted a kind of mass indictment of American institutions. You can't run the government appropriately, in my view, if you reject the sanctity of the very institutions you're governing. And the Republican Party right now has shown no interest in governing. And the Democratic Party has shown a willingness to kind of have one foot out, one foot in, one foot out by persistently claiming that the soul of the institutions that it that it is governing are inherently and deeply and forever flawed. So that's a very, very hard environment to advocate what are effectively technocratic solutions. There's two ways of going about it. One- Which by the way, technocrat is is viewed as a, it's, it's viewed as an insult yeah, nowadays, right, but I, right. I own it, you know, and there's probably better words for it, but I own it. I'm like, well, yeah, I want my government well, let, let me, to work. Let me say this, you yes, know? If you, I think technocrat <laughs> is a way, of, is an old way of saying, you're somebody who actually thinks that running the government is hard, who thinks it's worthy of doing well, and who understands how to do it. A good technocrat knows those things. But you're right, it's it's not valued because we, we're given to either an anti-government ideology on the right or an anti-merit ideology on the left. And so, you know, there's two ways of thinking about change. One is to think, and it's probably the most likely path, 
that education will forever be a vessel for political ambition and for political and, and kind of narrative and ideology. So, so it is true, probably, that education will be a laggard rather than a leader on the policy front. And whatever we end up with policy-wise in American education will continue to be a function of where the politics are, brought, are going, driven much more by the course of events, international affairs, and technology than by domestic issues like education and um, uh, healthcare, which will continue to be laggards. There's only one other way that I think you get there, which is not, people don't like to say this, but it's a top-down recognition by politicians that there's some hay to be made in actually playing on education. That, for example, if you want to pass a federal law around education, you actually do need a sizable share of the Congress to vote with you on that law. And that you can't use, you can't, you couldn't thread that needle on today's politics. If Joe Biden, which he, of course he wouldn't, but wanted to pass uh, another version of the Elementary and uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, which is up for, for reauthorization, he couldn't. He can't even pass the Higher Education Act because the politics are too fraught. So a, it is fair to say that a president who wanted to take this issue seriously, operating with a majority in her or his uh, uh, party could do it. And the way to do it would be to think about the federal law as a fundamentally new construct, to think about old issues like testing and standards and so on in new ways. Th that necessitates some preparation. If I were to indict the reform community right now, the education reform world, the, the sort of reformers who are like maybe like you and me, Ravi, are out there and waiting. Um, yeah. You know, I would say that we're not working hard enough on what that vision could be. We don't think long term enough. We're obsessed with the issues of the day. But in 10 years, when the next president who actually has a path to a new law wishes that there were better answers out there on testing, on standards, on accountability systems, on interventions, on what we should be saying is a good school versus not a good school. And we, the cupboard is bare on our end, shame on us. And, and that's, that is the big problem from, a, from the top-down political solution. No one is really intentionally working on that, on that issue. What could the next law look like? That is the only top-down policy answer to creating a new politics. Everything else, education is just subject to the politics of the moment. All right. Well, John, uh, on that sunny note, I think we're going to we're going to end this conversation. I think, I mean, you're such an inspiration. I hope uh, we get you back, uh, you know, in a um, superintendent chair at some point. Um, maybe if uh, if we move to another technocratic phase of government, we can get uh, another, you know, future Barack Obama type to appoint you. Secretary of Education. So, well, thanks, man. I'm, I'm working uh, on curriculum issues every day with uh, with great minds. Eureka Math, Wit and Wisdom, PhD Science. I'm very happy doing that. But I hope to come back and and uh, really appreciate the forum. Robert. Well, that's it for this episode of Regressives. I'd once again like to thank John White for his important perspective on an issue that doesn't get talked about enough in the United States. Regressives is produced by The Lost Debate by me, Robbie Gupta, with research support and sound edit by Joe Engelbrecht. You can subscribe to The Lost Debate and The Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for The Regressives. I'm Ravi Gupta. Thank you for listening.